Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What if you had a heart attack, but instead of calling your spouse or partner to get medical attention, your first thought was, I need to meet with my manager tomorrow. This isn't convenient. This is precisely what Jonathan Frostick, an IT lead at HSBC, experienced and explained in a LinkedIn post that went viral. A post that caught the eye of Sarah Green Carmichael, an editor with Bloomberg, and she needed to know more about why someone would think about a meeting before calling their spouse or partner. Sarah talks us through the process that led her to research and ultimately writing multiple articles about workaholism. A critical takeaway from Sarah's work is that workaholics often pin the blame anywhere but on themselves. Instead, it's your overbearing boss, an always-on company culture, or rising economic inequality. However, we have the power to control what we do and the ability to reframe our experiences to choose what is best for us. During our conversation, Sarah shares tactics on reducing workaholism from learning how to embrace trade-offs to developing other identities outside of our work and careers. Please enjoy my conversation with Sarah Green Carmichael. So Sarah, I think the best place to start is with your background. And so if anybody goes to your LinkedIn page, which I'll put in the show notes, what I want to know is how did you go from writing about the Boston Red Sox to being the editor at some very prestigious organizations such as Harvard Business Review, Barron's, and now you're the editor, one of the editors at Bloomberg. So walk our audience through your background to a certain degree and, and how you got to where you're at. Yeah, sure. So um, there's actually more of a connection between sports and management than it may first appear. I just started writing about the Red Sox because like any Boston girl, I was obsessed with the Red Sox. This was right around the time that they broke the curse in 2004. Um, And so I started writing about them and the I wrote about them for five or six years and I got to realize that really the, what you see on the field is a function of the money that's invested in the team, how well that money is managed, the kind of players that the owner and general manager assemble. And I started to become much more interested in those kind of workplace dynamics than in just who hit the ball to right field, you know? Um, So for me, it was very natural progression um, to, to then go to Harvard Business Review, where I was for about 10 years, and then from there um, to Barron's and now Bloomberg Opinion. So one of the, in speaking with journalists and especially editors, one of the things that I'm really fascinated about is 
How do you go about choosing the stories that you write about? Yes, it's, you know, I mean, there's sort of a couple of different things. I mean, it's a very collaborative process, I would say. I think maybe that's a surprise to some people. You know, you sort of envision people sort of heads down at their desks, but um, every writer needs an editor and sometimes editors need other editors to be a sounding board. Um, but you're trying to figure out, you know, what is on people's minds right now? What are the questions people are having? Um, especially, you know, this has been a huge, huge year of change in the field I cover, which is the workplace. Um, you know, we all got booted out of our offices and told to work from home in a sort of massive natural experiment. So that raised a lot of questions. Now offices are reopening that raises new questions. Um, and so in some sense, we're just kicking around ideas, trying to find something fresh that, that people are, are worrying about and that hasn't been covered anywhere else. So how I've found you and like I found a lot of my guests is very serendipitous. So I was driving around on a Saturday afternoon with one of my uh, daughters, my, my triplet daughter, and we were listening to Bloomberg radio and your story came on that you had just recently wrote about how to prevent um, workaholism, workaholics. And when you, when you were telling the audience about the, the story that you uh, wrote, what really caught my mind was this kind of the centerpiece of the piece that you wrote, which I'll link to in the, our show notes, is somebody posted on LinkedIn, this gentleman that was basically having a heart attack and thinking in his mind, this, this can't be happening because it's too inconvenient. <laughs> so walk us through what that, that piece. And, and I think from there, we'll kind of uh, go in different directions. Yeah. So that, that LinkedIn post caught my eye and a lot of people's attention. Um, and I, I think it really sort of puts an exclamation point on the year we've just had. Workaholism has often been a challenge in many time greedy industries. Um, and I think this past year has only exacerbated that for a lot of people, the loss of boundaries around um, work and life and the stress of the pandemic. And so then this, this um, IT manager at HSBC, Jonathan Frostick, um, said he, he basically just had a heart attack. It was a Sunday. He was sitting down around 4 p.m. to prepare for the work week ahead, as he often did on Sundays. Um, and suddenly he was just aware that something was going very, very wrong inside his body. And he thought, oh, I need to meet with my manager tomorrow. This really isn't convenient. You know, and had a bunch of other thoughts like that before he finally thought, well, I also hope my wife doesn't find my body, you know. <laughs> and that's when he realized maybe my priorities are a little out of whack. And I, I, I think um, that's an extreme example, but I think a lot of us have had you know, maybe times when we got sick or times um, when a family thing interrupted work and we just think, oh, this is not convenient, sort of losing sight of the big picture. So for me, you know, what I thought was so interesting about his story is that instead of blaming his boss or his company, he really put the blame on himself, which I, I think has gotten to be pretty rare. I think a lot of us blame our boss when we work too hard or we blame our company culture but we have more control over the situation than we often realize. So I, I wanted to explore that, that kind of what can we do about it angle. 
And I think that's the, when I went back and reread the article before we hit the record button, that was one of the th- interesting things about the, the title of your article. It was to prevent burnout, stop blaming your boss. And I was going to ask, well, how did you come up with that title? But now you just answered it for us. Yes, I think, you know, over the past 10 years and my work covering the workplace, I have noticed that there has been more of a trend to blame hard driving managers, to blame teams that won't stop emailing at all hours, to blame income inequality or, you know, big macroeconomic factors for pushing us to work harder and harder. And I think that to some degree and in different situations, all of those factors are real. Um, At the same time, that doesn't mean that we are powerless or just sort of like boats being buffeted by a tide. You know, we can really do some things to take charge of our own work lives and we don't have to ask anyone's permission. We can just do them. One of the things, one of the major projects that I've been working on behind the scenes at TAMA with the families that I work with, and hopefully this is going to get bigger, is deciding what enough is. And and when I hear what you're talking about, I'm like, oh my gosh, Sarah, this is like getting at the heart of what personally I've been trying to figure out for, for many, many years is what is enough? Like, how does a family decide what enough is? How does a person in their career decide what enough is? And I, I don't think that we give enough credence to figuring that out. Just like self-care, you know, that, that title or that name was a big, has been a big um, topic over the course of the pandemic. But I think figuring out what enough is, is always for me personally been lingering in the background. And I see a lot of the families I work with struggle with that as well, especially like once you start pouring on family responsibilities and having kids and you, in, in a lot of cases, you know, you have both spouses or partners working full-time demanding jobs. And it's like, when do you ever stop and, and pull back and start looking at what is it that I'm really after? And so I, I saw a lot of ties when I was reading your article and listening to you on the radio and this concept that I've been stressed or wrestling with for many years and trying to figure out how I can help families figure out what enough is. That's a great question. You know, I got a helpful piece of advice on this um, for an article I wrote um, from a woman named Melody Wilding, who has a book called Trust Yourself. And her advice was to notice when you feel, feel resentful, because that's often a signal that some need isn't being met. And that's a sign that you're not getting enough. Um, so, you know, and, and maybe you're not getting enough in that area because you're giving too much in a different area. So watching for those sort of emotional cues of I feel really resentful, whether it's towards your job or your partner or something, is maybe a sign to say, okay, I've let this go. I've let things get out of balance and I need to step back and reassess. So in, in the work that you do with as editor in Bloomberg in you know, work-life balance, how do you, what, what types of things do you see that, like you just mentioned, can help you bring yourself back to center? Because I think what people struggle with, and I was just having this conversation with um, Dennis Mosley-Williams, who I had on the podcast previously, about you need to take time to recharge. And I think people see taking time out to recharge as, I guess, somewhat wasteful. 
um, even though you need, you know, you probably need to do it. It's like, it feels like you're slowing yourself down when you, you feel all this pressure to keep going. So there's a, a fascinating paper I was just reading um, by a professor at Wharton, uh, Stephanie Creary was the lead author. And she talks about how there is this sense sometimes that you are in a, a cycle that is workaholism and then rest and workaholism and then rest. So I, I think the answer is not just to take time out to recharge or rest, um, but she argues in this research that what you really need is something that is deeply meaningful to you. That's not just sort of flopping on the couch. That's not just sort of going for a walk by yourself for 20 minutes. You know, you need something that is a, a hobby that kind of gets you in your body, that gets you out of the house, that gets you with other people. And that is substantial enough to really serve as a counter counterweight to all the work you're doing. So instead of thinking of just rest as an opportunity to do nothing or as a, the kind of absence of work, it's an opportunity to have a rich and vibrant life. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, I, I have had a number of people say to me over the years who've become parents, I didn't really know how to set boundaries before I had kids, you know, like I didn't know that I could just stop working at seven or five and have a life. But then when I, they had kids, they realized they had to do that because there was this little person who needed them. Yeah. You know, I, I realized that too. When I think about when I go back 10, 15 years, when I was still full-time in my corporate career, it, before I had the kids, I would see people that did have kids like, well, I got to go at four o'clock. I got this soccer game. I got to get to you. I'm just like, well, darn it. I need, I need help with this project. You know, I need, you know, to get this, this report out to the CEO on whatever thing I was working on. And I, I don't think it's something that you really truly understand until you're actually in it because you can read all the books you want on parenting, but <laughs> until it actually happens, <laughs> there's no prep for it, <laughs> especially go ahead. Yeah, well, and I was going to say that that, that situation is very common. And this is where I do think uh, organizations and managers have to step up because they do often expect childless people to put in more hours. Um, and I don't think that's fair either. And that, that does create an imbalance. So coming back to, um, your, their article and, and workaholism, what are, what are some of the key, I guess, takeaways, or let me put it this way, surprising truths and false stereotypes that you've learned about being a workaholic? Yeah. So I think one thing that I learned that was surprising to me was that, you know, in the U.S., we often equate workaholism with just putting in long hours. The cutoff is typically around 50 or 55 hours a week. If you're working, you know, basically more than 11 hours a day, five days a week, we define that as workaholism or overwork. But in other countries, um, they define it more by an attitude and there's researchers who've kind of studied that. And so one of the, the assessments I like is called the Bergen Work Addiction Scale. And it asks you a bunch of questions about how you feel about your job. Like, how often are you thinking about ways to free up time to do more work? Or how often are you working in order to reduce feelings of guilt or anxiety? Um, how often do you become stressed if you're prohibited from working for some reason? 
things like that. And, and to me, that's a fascinating way of thinking about it because that means you could be a workaholic, even if you're working 35, 40 hours a week. So it's, it's, and that some research has found that it's those feelings of guilt and stress that really create the problems that workaholics face as opposed to the long hours, the long hours can be a problem. And, um, but, but it was interesting to me to learn that you can be a workaholic, even if you're not putting in those long hours. Is there, are there like specific countries where that was more prevalent, like that, that feeling rather than like putting in the hours? Because to me, like, at least here in the States that, that would like, it sound like rubbish. <laughs> oh, that you, that is, that if you have, that if you don't put in long hours, you might be a workaholic. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, they basically, they, so they can't, the researchers in um, Norway came up with this work addiction scale, but it has been validated by researchers all over the world who've used it and find that it does predict workaholism. And then in fact, some researchers at the Wharton school, um, used that approach to measure physical uh, negative effects of workaholism. So workaholism has been linked to um, increased alcoholism, sleeplessness, heart problems, obesity, you know, a lot of these physical problems. And, you know, we might assume that it's because people are putting in long hours and they don't have time to eat healthier workout. And that's to some extent true, but it can also be that because you feel so bad about your work, it actually has a physical effect. And I think in the US, we are much less comfortable admitting to this sort of mind-body connection and other cultures are much more comfortable with that. Um, but to me, there is enough research on this to suggest that we, we need to be, if, our, if, if thoughts of work are intruding on the weekends, even if we're not working, that can be a problem and we should have ways of coping with that. So in what you just said, there's to me there, that means like once again there's a strong tie back to mental health, which I think that's another big topic that COVID has brought out. You know, this past year is is mental health. When you're looking at um, workaholism in somebody that's working, you know, a lot of hours, fifty, fifty-five, sixty hours a week. Just because to take the opposite side of that, just because they're working that much doesn't necessarily mean that they're a workaholic either, correct? That's correct. Sometimes people work that much and it has no effect on them because when they're done, they're done. They go home. They don't think about work anymore. They don't feel guilty if they're not working. They are able to just flip that switch and go back to their normal lives. And sometimes people work that hard because they genuinely love their work and it brings them a great amount of joy. That's why I was just going to ask, like, if you're somebody that really enjoys what you do, um, sometimes like, like with, with what I do, I could work 10, 15 hours a day. And unless I'm looking at a clock, I may not realize it just because I'm so enthralled to what I'm, I'm doing. Um, but then when I get the knock on my office door, <laughs> one of my kids like, dad, we need you. <laughs> it, that's, that's when it becomes, oh, I just... I was just in my office for 10 straight hours working and you know, not paying attention to every, anybody else. Right. And I, I think that that state of flow is what they call it in psychology. That is a wonderful feeling. Um, and I guess it's only a problem if it is interfering with, you know, the other people in your life, if your wife is outside or your kids are outside being like, hello, <laughs> where are you? 
so from from that standpoint of being a workaholic, what have you found as ways to re- reduce, I guess, workaholism in, in people? Yeah, well, I think it the tactics depend a little bit on whether you think your primary problem is that you're putting in too many hours or whether you think your primary problem is that you just simply feel guilty or feel sort of work obsessed, but you know, maybe you actually are really good at setting a time boundary, right? So if the problem is, is more to do with putting in a lot of hours, then you're doing things like you are prioritizing ruthlessly. You know, you're not trying to get an A on every assignment. You are saying, what are the most important things that matter to whether I get a performance or a raise, the work that's most meaningful to me, how can I prioritize those projects and how can I just get a B or a B minus on the other stuff, you know? So that's something I think, you know, it's about embracing trade-offs. You know, I think a lot of big firms do demand longer hours and then a lot of smaller or more boutique companies um, offer you more control um, over your time. So you might earn a little less money, but maybe that's worth it. So I I think it's those kinds of trade-offs. Um, if it is more of an, a problem where you are just obsessed with work mentally, um, I think it's about developing other identities. You know, it's about embracing those outside hobbies and passions. Um, it's about, um, you know, when you are working on something, don't tell yourself, you know, I have to do this right now. Tell yourself, I'm choosing to do this right now. Assert a little autonomy over over your time. Um, it's framing, about, framing, exactly, right? Reframing, reframing. Um, and it's about coming up with a way to maybe if this is often a problem for people at very prestigious jobs. You know, um, I I know a little bit about this because I worked at Harvard. And, <laughs> um, when you work at a place like Harvard or Goldman Sachs or someplace with a lot of prestige it is very, very um, seductive to be able to say, well, I am an editor at Harvard Business Review or something. It makes you feel good, but you start, you can start to lose yourself in that. So it's about, it's about watching out for that kind of identity blurring. So actually that's a really good point because so many of us are, our identities are wrapped up in our career they represent who we are, that prestige that you're just talking about. So have you, in, in your research and talking with, with people on this subject, have you been able to find ways for people to um, re-identify themselves with something other than work? Because I, I fully admit, I have a problem with that. Like Whether it was in my corporate career or now being an op- entrepreneur with Tama, uh, that's something I've always struggled with. Yeah, I think that part of it is having passions outside of work, which anyone can do. And I think it it is important to be intentional and have those passions be not things that are super close to your work. Um, So like I spend my whole day at a desk, at a laptop. So it would not make sense for me to try to have a hobby that involves sitting at my laptop and whatever that might be. Um, So I intentionally have embraced hobbies that are like hiking or gardening or, you know, that get me outside and connected to nature. Um, 
And I also think, you know, it's about connecting with other people, right? So this is actually an area where working parents, I think, have an advantage. We talk a lot about the challenges that working parents face, but working parents have a very strong other identity that is that of a parent. And that I think can help bring some balance to life as, as hard as it sometimes is to then enforce that balance. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because it goes back to a point you just made a few minutes ago about that whole reframing and I'm choosing to do this. Like I'm, when, when I do that with my kids, say, you know, taking my, my daughter to swim, you know, like I'm choosing to do this. I, I want to do this. It's not, I, Oh my God, we, we're like so overloaded with activities. Like it's hard to manage, but no, it's, I, when I reframe myself like that, I feel much better about it. And the other thing I was just thinking about this the other night, I was telling my wife, Teresa, the same thing is, that my, my girls are still young enough where they want me to brush their hair at night. And, you know, I may be reading or doing something else, but when they come down and, you know, they don't even have to say anything. They just have the brush in their hand and like, they're staring at me. It, this was, it was happened two nights ago or yeah, two nights ago, when I was watching the, the Bruins game. Um, my daughter comes down and, you know, she sees that, you know, I'm watching the game and she's like, here's the brush, you know, let's, let's go. I'm like, I, I make sure that I take time out. And although I was really enthralled with the game, I know that I don't have much time left to be able to brush my girls' hair. And to me, that's really important. That is a great example. And that is adorable. And yes, there will come a time when they will not want you to do that anymore. (laughs) I just hope they'll sit down and watch the Bruins game with me sometime soon. Um. So sticking to that in, in your research, have you found any strong or loose connections between being a parent and being a workaholic? Is there any research that ties those two together? I have not seen research that sort of suggests that there's a connection between them, but I have seen research that suggests, for example, that, um, when, for example, when female professors have children, they become more productive and more efficient. So they start producing more papers, you know, for example, or something like that. So I, I have seen research that that suggests that um, in a way that, that that's not workaholism, right? Because they're getting more out of their time. They're doing the most important work um, and they're doing it, you know, more efficiently. So um that's kind of a hopeful sign, I think. And I, I think it is a sign that, you know, yes, children are, you know, if you have children, you know, they're, they're unescapable. Um, <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that, um, you know, there, there, there's in theory, at least should be no reason why people without kids couldn't also be more efficient at work, you know, get more done in less time. Um, you know, I have worked, for example, with some working moms who work four days a week or three days a week instead of five, and they get just as much done as the people who are in the office five days a week. They just do it really fast, do it really well, and then get home to their kids. So I think that there is a sort of old saw that if you want something done well, ask a busy person. And I think that applies to working parents. They just do more with less. Yeah, I was just, I couldn't remember that exact phrase that you just uttered. And, and I've heard that before with like, you know, if you want something done, you know, go find a, a, a busy mom. 
because they'll, <laughs> they'll find a way to get it done. And I think that's interesting in, in going through that, you know, how, how people find their way to become more efficient. And I think, you know, I, I work with a lot of families that are going through some kind of life transition, whether it's, you know, having, you know, a new, a new baby or changing jobs or, you know, some immediate family concern. It's really not until somebody experiences that life change. That's that tipping point or trigger point to say, okay, I've got to figure out something different, or I got to figure out how to become more efficient because I know that at four o'clock I've got to stop. So then it becomes, you know, I know I mentioned this in kind of like our email back and forth is like, I'm a big fan of Cal Newport and all the work that he's done around um, time blocking and efficiency and digital uh, minimalism and deep work. And to me, I think that's an avenue that, and I'll link to some of that in our show notes too, an avenue as far as specific tactics people can really utilize to uh, become more efficient and, you know, get, you know, get to where they need to go quicker, more efficient because they know they need to stop at four o'clock to get the kids off the bus. Yes. I think the essential question there is also every time you have a piece of work land in your inbox, I think you have to ask yourself, is this glory work or is this grunt work? You know, is this going to bring me an amazing new client? Is this going to get me a raise? Is this important to my boss? Is this important to me? And if the answer to those questions is no, then I think you get it done as quickly as possible. Or in some cases, you can even decline to do it. Um, you know, it, it, I think there is a real temptation to try to be good at everything, especially among the conscientious sorts of people who are prone to workaholism or anxiety about work. And that's not realistic. And I, I think that knowing what to focus on and what to let go of is, is really where this all starts. So are there any other points that we've missed from your article? And I, I honestly, I didn't get a chance to you had a follow-up article as well that you just released a couple of days ago. I'll link to that in the show notes. And I haven't had a chance to read that yet. Is there, are there points from, from that that you would want to bring to light? Yeah, I would say, I think if there's sort of one lesson I could leave people with, I think it would be um, that you don't need to ask for permission to make these changes or over explain. And I see that a lot with, um, especially women, but not, not only women, but this feeling of like, oh, well, I need to tell my boss that I'm going to stop checking email after six, um, or I, I need to ask if it's okay. And I, I, I don't think you actually need to do that. I think you can try little experiments to try to start pulling back. Um, you can certainly ask your boss for help prioritizing. Um, that's something about any boss should be willing to do. Um, but, you know, there is a, I think that there are a lot of people out there who are very good at impression management and giving the impression that they're super committed and always working, but they're not. They're taking time for themselves. You just don't know it because they're so good at giving you this impression of full-on dedication. So I, I think that people can, at any time they want, start to try just little experiments pulling back and see if anyone notices. So one one thing that we haven't touched on is and I don't know if you've started working on this, you kind of brought up when we first started a conversation is this transition of 
back to work. Are, are you looking at how that's going to start affecting people and how companies, you know, are going to have hybrid or they want people back? Because to me, it's all across the board. Like I talked to a lot of my families about it. I've got a front row seat with, with my wife, Teresa, who still has her corporate career. And it's a challenge because there's, I think there's a sense of with some of these companies, they want people back to work, but then, you know, some of the management teams, not quite sure. And so it's extremely inconsistent. Yes, I think we're headed for a few months of just transition and we don't know what it's going to look like. And it's going to be confusing in the way that suddenly working remotely at the beginning of the pandemic was confusing. Um, And we don't really know what's on the other side. You know, are we headed to some kind of future where there is more flexibility and a sort of hybrid remote in-person work environment? Or are we just slowly going back to what we had before where people are largely in the office five days a week? We don't know. And that's very unsettling. And I I think the other thing that's unsettling for a lot of people is we've spent the last 14, 15 months, a lot of us looking at other people as if they are potentially a vector of a deadly disease. (laughs) (laughs) And, And now we're supposed to just take off our masks and hug each other and make small talk by the coffee machine. Um, that is going to feel really, really, really weird. You know, I was just looking at a survey this morning put out by the Harris Poll saying that the things people are most upset about return to work, return to the office, excuse, excuse me, are um, things like, you know, getting dressed, <laughs> having to make small talk, you know, these sorts of social things. So, um, and, and I, my fear a little bit is that if we overworked during the pandemic when we were working from home and maybe didn't have some of the social outlets we normally would have, we're now going to be feeling pressure to put in all this face time at work to reassure people that we're valuable, we're important, we're very you know needed, um, and we're going to keep doing this kind of terrible like overwork coupled with this weird face time, and it's going to be exhausting. So I, I'm really hoping we can avoid that. Yeah, I I think we tend to project what's going on today, you know, far into the future. Like, okay, well, just like no one could imagine what working or working from home full time was like before the pandemic, and now we've been in it for over a year, and now it's do can we can we actually go back and think about what it's like to work in an office environment again? Because I. I think the the struggle with especially parents is that commute time and speaking from personal experience of, of having a, a one hour commute one way and my wife, Teresa, having a commute one hour one way, that that's a lot of lost time. And those, those that relates into, you know, missing soccer games and, and things that start like right after school or you're rushing out. And so I, I think that's going to be a real challenge. Just like zoom fatigue is, is probably a a real challenge. I I heard the CEO on of of zoom on CNBC last week, talking about a health study that they did as far as like, is zoom fatigue real? And they even basically answered, yes, it it is. Um, So I, I think it's going to, it's going to be messy, like like you alluded to, 
in this transition back. And we, we really don't know. And that makes it, that makes us even more nervous when, when that, that unknown is so great at, is how this transitions back. And like you said, yeah, there are parent, there are people still afraid from a health standpoint of, of, of going back into an office environment. Yeah. And I, I think that to the extent that managers can really be empathetic and understanding and can set a tone that it is okay if you don't want to come back right away. I think that will actually be really beneficial, especially as there's still a bunch of people who are not vaccinated. Um, you know, and, and I think that, um, that looking at the next few months as a transition rather than as sort of a light switch flipping is probably the way to deal with some of these concerns. And I think for each of us as individuals, I think recognizing that the pressure we feel to go into the office or the pressure we feel to put in a lot of FaceTime in some ways, you know, could be result. It could be resulting from the fact that your boss was like, get your butt back in the seat, but it could also be resulting from a kind of lack of information. Like, Am I supposed to do this? Well, I'd better do it just in case, you know, but this, to the extent that we can get clearer, better information, um, maybe it allays some of our concerns. I think the other thing along that point, Sarah, that's, that's really fascinating for me from a business standpoint is what businesses will be able to pivot and use this transition to their advantage and what businesses won't. So for example, is is a is a business going to say you know what you can work remote it it doesn't matter where you're at versus a company that says okay we're now open you got to come back in the office you know is depending on people's personal situations you know that that going back in the office may not work for them anymore you may, they may not want that and so i'm i'm curious to see how this you know a trend develops and, and businesses using it as an advantage or it being a disadvantage for some of them. I think that's a really great point. And I think the, the companies I've spoken with who are getting this right and using it as an advantage are the companies who are being really clear about what the office is for. Like if you're just going to do your heads down, deep work, go into monk mode, stay home. That's okay. But you know, every Wednesday is brainstorming day or whatever. And we want you in the office to socialize, create team culture, brainstorm new ideas, have meetings. Um, the companies that are bringing sort of discipline and thoughtfulness to like, why do you want people to come to this building? They're the ones who I think have a real edge. Yeah, I would, I would agree. So, and I'm, I'm sure that's, that's going to be a hot topic that I know that you're going to be covering and, and I will, uh, be all over that. Um, so, as we come to the end of our conversation, my closing question for all of my guests is what is the best thing about being a parent? But I know you're in a little different situation where you're expecting your first child, which is so exciting. And it's just one, right? You don't have like twins or triplets in there. Okay. Just one. <laughs> so, I, so let me kind of rearrange that, that question is what is the one thing that you're looking forward to most about being a parent? Oh, wow. What a great question. Um, yeah, I guess I'm really excited to just meet this little person and find out who she is. Um, she's right now, she's just a little stranger who keeps kicking me, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really excited to meet her and see who she develops into. Um, 
And, and I am very grateful to have, you know, a company that I feel like has really supported me. And in a weird way, the pandemic, while it's been isolating, I've been able to work from home in sweatpants every day, which while pregnant has been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm grateful for that. And I, I'm grateful to be in a lucky situation where I, I have a very generous maternity leave. So just getting getting to know that little person over my my leave is, is going to be awesome. Well, I think that is a fantastic way to wrap up our, our conversation. And I have a, a strong feeling that... Uh, there will be many more uh, conversations with you, uh, Sarah, going forward on these very, very important topics. So I can't thank you enough for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.